0: We are pleased today to have with us an investigative journalist, Maren McKenna, who has done loads of work in public health and has written three books in this area, and she's actually a a senior fellow for investigative journalism at Brandeis University. And her latest book is Big Chicken, which I am confident is going to open your eyes to many aspects of this industry uh, that you were unaware of. It certainly did for me. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Maren.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So um, we're just delighted to be able to connect with you because your book is such a useful treatise on the uh, exploration of this really important topic. And that many of us are so unaware of on the whole history of how chicken is used as a primary food. But before we go into those details, why don't you tell us what motivated you to write a book on this topic?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. So I have written about public health and global health for most of my career as a journalist. And about seven years ago, I got really interested in the problem of antibiotic resistance, which I think for most people is really kind of an unappreciated health threat. I mean, in the United States every year, 23,000 people die of drug-resistant infections. Two million are made sick enough to go to a doctor or or seek help at a hospital. And globally, the deaths per year may be 700,000, and predicted to go up into the millions in a fairly short period of time. So I was investigating that. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to tell the story of the rise of antibiotic resistance kind of through the biography of one organism. So I was reading a lot of scientific papers and looking at a lot of international statistics. And I ran across a statistic that really kind of snapped my head back, which was that in the United States, in an average year, four times as many antibiotics are sold for use in livestock Mm -hmm. as are sold for use in human patients. Now, I was in the midst of doctors and researchers and drug developers who were all saying to me. Antibiotics are precious. Antibiotics are threatened by antibiotic resistance. We are about to lose them and return to the pre-antibiotic era. We have to protect their power and conserve them. And I could not make sense of how, in the same space and time, we were both getting messages that we had to protect antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, spending antibiotics so freely mostly to be fed to animals that are not sick. And that contradiction is what sent me on the journey that ended up in this book.
0: Well, your book does a magnificent job of answering that question that you had. So congratulations on compiling a resource that answered it because it really goes deep and gives the backstory as to why this happened. But why don't you start explaining it because I don't. Th- I mean, obviously, it's big chicken, and most people aren't aware of the history. I certainly wasn't. So, why, f- why don't you walk us through the history of how chicken developed, and you know, and how they grow so enor- grew so enormously, and uh, obviously how they eventually integrated uh, antibiotics as growth promoters. But a mm-hmm. um, very interesting story.
1: So, I'll start with the end of the story first, because then the the going back to the beginning of the history will make sense. The short version is that. We give antibiotics to most of the meat animals on the planet on most days of their lives. And we don't give them those antibiotics because the animals are sick. We give them because back in the 1950s, it was discovered that if you give tiny doses of antibiotics to animals, much too small to cure an infection, you will cause them to put on weight faster, which is an economic benefit to the farmer or the producer. And then a little while after that, it was discovered that if you gave a slightly larger dose, but still not enough to cure an infection, so what would technically be called a sub-therapeutic dose, you could protect animals from the diseases that spread in crowded barns and feedlots. Those barns and feedlots becoming crowded because of this temptation to grow animals faster and faster. So that's where we are today, all around the world. Hundreds of thousands of tons of antibiotics going into animals.
0: That's true. But the story story isn't as as discouraging as you relate it because you have some very exciting uh new developments that is happening that's moving in a different direction. We'll talk about that later, but that was there is so there is hope. Don't get discouraged. I I feel like a story
1: story that has a a positive turn at the end. So where does the story begin? It begins at the beginning of the antibiotic era. Now most of us don't really realize I think that we haven't actually had antibiotics that long because all of us were born within the antibiotic era, which starts uh, in 1928 when Alexander Fleming leaves a window open in his laboratory in London, something blows into the plates of staph bacteria he's working with and kills them. And what he discovers that what kills the bacteria is a compound excreted by the natural mold penicillium and out of that we get the first antibiotic penicillin which becomes rolled out on the battlefields of World War II in 1943, enters the market in about 1945 for everyday people. And it's so successful that other companies that were making what at the time would have been sort of patent over-the-counter medicines decide that they too want their own antibiotics. And so from 1945 to 1948, that's really when antibiotics come on the market right at the end of World War II and are a massive success. But another interesting thing happens at the end of World War II, which is that the food system gets very fragile, partly because of the destruction of the war, because flocks and herds have been decimated, arable land has been ruined by troop movements, we can't get protein out of the oceans because all the fishing fleets have been commandeered for, by navies. And so there's both a sense that the food system is fragile and also because the guaranteed market in the United States for feeding soldiers and sailors Goes away with the end of the war, there's a lot of overcapacity that the food system has to account for. And so there's this push to to save money. And the way that food producers save money is by giving their animals cheaper feed. Then they have to go look for a supplement that's also inexpensive to compensate for that feed being cheaper and less nutritious. And so in this search for supplements, a specialist in the dietary needs of chicken who happens to be working for one of those companies that's making one of the first antibiotics, goes in a search for those supplements and kind of casually, as one of the supplements he's trying, uses the dried manufacturing leftovers from his company's drug, which is called Oreomycin. It's the first of the tetracycline class of drugs. And to his amazement, The baby chicks, the chicken starts this story, the the baby chicks that get the dried oreomycin leftovers grow more than twice as fast, put on twice as much weight as any of the other chicks in his experiment, getting any other supplement. And from that, a worldwide industry of giving antibiotics to animals is born within five years. American farmers are giving their livestock 500,000 pounds of antibiotics a year, and now it's over 30 million pounds.
0: That is a fascinating story, but let's uh, paint the picture a little broader with respect to going back into the history of chickens and how they were just these scrawny little birds that no one would have ever thought to consume as a primary meal. And then they've evolved essentially to the point where it's the primary meat source in the United States and in fact, most of the developed world. It's a fascinating story. So if you could walk us through that, it'd be great.
1: Sure, and it's true that chicken is the meat that we eat in the United States more than any other by far. More than, I think it's up to now, 91 pounds for every man, woman, and child in the United States. And chickens are growing fastest in consumption around the world because chickens are a very easy animal to raise. They don't take a lot of land. They can eat scraps. You can pack them in quite close. So where does all that begin? Well, if we went back to the time of our grandparents or great-grandparents, almost everyone probably raised chickens. Mostly they were out the back door or mm-hmm. in, the, in the barnyard. But the reason they were there wasn't primarily to be a meat source. It was to be a source for eggs because eggs were a very inexpensive, very easy to produce protein. And for the most part, we ate chicken after hen's egg laying days were done. So if you imagine a hen that's been running around for a couple of years chasing chicks around a barnyard, flapping up into a tree to avoid the family dog, scratching for or, insects. Or predators. Or, or predators, foxes, and, and uh, owls, and hawks, and so Rappers. forth. That bird is going to be kind of scrawny and kind mm-hmm. of muscular, and so not very delicious, probably with a very rich flavor from all of that muscular development, but not um, tender and juicy and sort of soft the way our chickens are now. The only difference to that would have been if you know a farmer that is looking or even a a householder who's looking for eggs doesn't really need a lot of roosters. And so baby roosters when they hatched out would have been grown up fed for a couple of months and then sold. They were called spring chickens and they were considered uniquely delicious. If you look back and sort of in the history of menus in America in the 20th century, before World War II, you can see spring chickens as a delicacy. So that's where chickens were. And then um, out of a really interesting confluence of sort of accidents, chicken moves forward as a meat source. First, because it turns out that chickens are so easy to raise that farmers in Delaware and Maryland and Virginia on the the Delmarva Peninsula below Baltimore and Philadelphia convert from being truck farmers for vegetables to chicken farmers. And their market for these meat chickens that they're growing is New York City, which at the time, possibly still, has the largest concentration of Jewish population in the world. Observant Jews who want to observe the Sabbath and want appropriately to have a lovely sort of exotic uh, luxurious meal for the Sabbath can't, can't eat pork, obviously. And uh, if they are observant, then in the years before World War II, it might have been hard to confirm whether the beef they were buying had actually been, uh, been slaughtered in the appropriate manner but a chicken was very portable. So you could go into a live market and watch the chicken killed in front of you and know that it was religiously appropriate. So chicken becomes the meat of New York City. And out of that sense that there is a market there for meat chicken that no one has really appreciated, there begins to be driven partly by this new movement to grow more chickens, this ability to grow more chickens because of using those growth promoter antibiotics, there begins to be a new chicken industry in which chicken is marketed not as a source of eggs but as a source of meat to the American public. And people find it delicious and portable and easier to handle. It has some limitations. There's not too many things that you can do with a chicken except roast or bake or broil a chicken. Um, the chickens are eventually sort of bred into a different shape, uh, the shape that we know today by a nationwide contest called the Chicken of Tomorrow contest from the late 1940s to the early 1950s, in which we uh, chickens are reshaped by breeders to be the, the, the breast-heavy, docile, white-feathered, tender, not exercising birds that we know today. So there's this series of both historical accidents and technological innovations that get us to the point where right now, compared to the chickens that were around in the 1950s, they get to twice the slaughter weight in half the time.
0: Yeah, that's it's an enormous statistic. And I, I don't think most people were that twice as heavy in half the time, which is certainly a, a great... <laughs> Uh, financial consideration from the growers and uh, the distributors, but not necessarily best for the animal or the humans consuming that. That's right. So, yeah, that's a, it's a great story. And uh, so these super chickens, these breeds started going around and then it became, uh, well, I, before we go there though, wasn't there a campaign prior to that? I believe it was Herbert Hoover, where chicken in every pot, which started to get people uh, used to the idea that people should be eating chicken.
1: So the interesting thing about that, that Herbert Hoover campaign, uh, that that slogan that we've all heard, a, a chicken in every pot, it's actually a chicken for every pot. I went back and I found the original ad it wasn't said by Herbert Hoover, it was a campaign promise made on his behalf by a Republican campaign group in the election. And the subtext of that promise is that at the time, chicken was rare and special. Chicken was a thing that you ate mostly on Sunday. It was by no means the, the meat that we eat every day as it is today. and. One of the things that happened to change that was this making chicken more delicious by changing the shape of the chicken, which also made it easier for producers to cram more and more chickens into barns because now the chickens were docile and didn't flap around a lot. But another thing that happened, another one of these historical accidents, is that in 1977, for the first time ever, the US government started to tell its population what we should eat. And one of the things it said in the first Dietary Guidelines for Americans, which are a periodic publication of the government that are, is vociferously argued over every time it's revised, is that people should avoid saturated fat. So it didn't actually say you should avoid red meat, but it was interpreted that way by most people. And in that year, 1977, Up to that point, we were eating way more beef than we were chicken. And right at 1977, you can see the two lines cross, and we eat more and more chicken every year, and less and less beef. One other thing happened to to make that possible, and that is that a very clever kind of idiosyncratic scientist working up in upstate New York figured out how to do with chicken what farmers and householders had been doing with beef and pork from for generations, centuries. And that was to make chicken into different things. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have to just roast a chicken, fry a chicken, cut a chicken up, and, and bake it or broil it. You could eat chicken bologna, chicken hot dogs, and the most important thing, the thing that really changes the history of the chicken, chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. We think of them as being a, a creation of McDonald's, but before McDonald's in, ni- in uh, 1980, there was Robert Baker of Cornell University, who in 1963 published the first recipe for what he called a chicken stick, which was bits of chicken glued together with uh, excess protein and breaded and frozen and deep fried. And from that, what the industry calls further processed chicken, chicken that's not just chicken on the bone, that completely changed our relationship to chicken. It made it not just, a, it was already abundant, mm-hmm. but it, now chicken was easy to eat as well. And that's yeah. where it, how it got to where it is in our diet.
0: And let's go to the abundance issue too. I believe at the turn of the century around 1910, there was about 154 million chickens that were sold for meat. Uh, and that increased to like nearly 600 million by 1949 when the, <clears throat> the growth promoter, the antibiotics' of growth promoters kicked in. So that's a big increase from, 150 million four times is 600 million. But what is it now, 60 or 70 years later?
1: I think it would really shock people to know how many chickens we grow in the United States. In fact, um, the United States produces just in meat chickens almost 9 billion, with a B, chickens a year. Uh, I live in Atlanta. Georgia is the number one chicken producing state in the United States. We produce, about one point four billion chickens, if Georgia were an wow. independent country, we would have a chicken economy that that ranked somewhere up there with china and brazil and it 's really extraordinary to me billions I mean, and billions of birds and and that, i mean that's a, that's a huge agricultural sector, I and mean, you'll almost never see those chickens because of the way they 're raised
0: and they also go along with coca colas home bases in atlanta so there's <laughs> George has got some interesting products that uh, it's selling, responsible for selling. So that's amazing. Nine billion chickens every year. That's a right. lot of chickens. So we essentially uh, went up almost 15, 16 times since 1950, which is not surprising considering the aggressive industrialization and marketing campaigns that went behind this. Uh, and I think many of our... Viewers are somewhat familiar with the CAFO process and the absolutely inhumane conditions that these animals are raised in. And we haven't touched on that yet, but I'm wondering if you could describe the history of how that evolved and some of the really tragic uh, injustices that are being done to these animals.
1: So chicken production in the United States is uh, an extraordinary business structure that subsumes, but that it, it makes it, it makes both animal welfare and the rights of farmers um, secondary to the structure of the, the profits of the business. So if you think back to what we just talked about, to the way that chickens physically changed from being a kind of scrawny, feisty bird that fed itself and ran around a barnyard Uh, and then was changed by the routine administration of antibiotics into a bird that could be produced faster and faster. It makes economic sense, and it makes sort of logistical sense that if you're going to start raising more and more chickens, you don't want them running all over the place. And so precision breeding brought chickens into a a new sort of like a new format into which they were, they didn't fly very much. They just kind of sat up and down. They were very docile. They didn't want to roam around a lot. And that made it possible, uh, preferable, to pack them more and more into barns, which are called houses in the industry because the chickens didn't really kind of fight back. Chickens actually sort of uniquely lend themselves to industrialization because they're small. uh, They don't live very long. They don't fight back. Uh, you can breed new traits in very quickly. And so where we are today is that most meat chickens are raised in these giant houses, which are as long as a football field, 25 to 35,000 at a time. For most companies, the, the walls of the sheds are solid, so they don't get any natural light. Um, they, have a, a, they live on an, in an artificial day, with an artificially shortened night. Um, They mostly stay in the same place. They don't move very far. They don't flap very much. And on average, they only live 42 days. So a chicken at the point at which we eat it, though it is a full-size chicken of five or six pounds, is only barely a teenager, possibly less, maybe still a child within what would be the normal evolutionary lifespan of a chicken. And the, the thing that is so extraordinary, that's the backdrop of all of that, is the business structure that grew up to enable these giant um, farms with these giant houses to happen, which is that, uniquely in the United in, in, um, among all other industries, the farmers who raise chickens don't actually own the chickens. They own their land usually, although it's, it's, they're probably paying a mortgage on it. They pay to build those houses. They own their debt, and they own the manure that comes out of all those houses. But the company they grow for, the company to which they're contracted, they're called contract farmers, buys the genetics from a genetics company, hatches the chicks, takes the chicks to the farmers, brings the feed to the farmers, picks the birds up, six weeks later, takes them to a company-owned slaughtering plant, slaughters them, packages them, distributes them, and negotiates the wholesale and so forth contracts. So almost everything that's profit-making in the process of raising chicken belongs to the corporation. And almost Mm -hmm. everything that is difficult or economically perilous about it remains with the farmer.
0: Yeah, it's a classic... uh distribution system that you know exists in so many areas. So thank you for expanding on that. And one of the things we overlooked was the uh, collusion between these federal regulatory agencies like the FDA and industry. Uh, I think that the NIH in the 70s uh, actually uh, funded some research to show the effects of these growth antibiotics as growth promoters. And it didn't come up positive, but yet thanks to some uh, lobbied congressman who became was very prominent in the industry, uh, this information was suppressed for decades until he died. So why don't you, it's a very interesting story. So why don't you go it's over that? It's a
1: sad, sad story. So um, what happened was this. So, so to be clear, the problem with giving antibiotics to meat animals in the way that we're talking about is it's not, I, I hope that people understand this because this is a really important point, we're not consuming antibiotics when we eat those animals. Uh, if, there's, if they've been given so much antibiotics that there's anti- actually antibiotic in their flesh, that is regulated by law in the United States. That's called antibiotic residue. The peril here is that when we give antibiotics to animals, that, the, that process that causes them to put on weight more rapidly is, is the changing of their gut microbiome the bacteria that live in the guts of them and us and every living thing. And in the process of affecting that bacteria, some of those bacteria become antibiotic resistant. Now, those antibiotic resistant bacteria are in the animal's guts. And so one of two things happens. Either they pass out of the animal in its manure, And then that manure contaminates the farm environment, and those antibiotic-resistant bacteria pass through the environment on a variety of pathways. Or after the animal's dead, when it's disassembled at slaughter, the gut contents get on the meat, and antibiotic-resistant bacteria travel to us in home and restaurant kitchens. So the peril here is the creation of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. That's the, the larger backdrop to the problem of the way that antibiotics created an artificial system. Of raising animals,
0: so yeah, it, it, this is not an insignificant risk, as I think you alluded to earlier. There was nearly a million people die every year from these these, these types of infections.
1: And right.
0: uh, how many would that be about in the United States?
1: In the United from chi- States, from chickens,
0: from chickens, chickens alone. Any guess? Was it like a few hundred thousand that are dead? I mean, it's it's dozens of people every day. I'm sure they're dying from so this process.
1: Twenty three thousand people a year die from antibiotic-resistant infections in the United States. And a a further, something like 48 million people a year have foodborne illnesses in the United States, some percentage of which it's not very well measured, are antibiotic-resistant. So the problem of antibiotic-resistant foodborne illness is an enormous problem. And it's actually how the, the, the issue of giving antibiotics to meat animals first was exposed as a danger first in England and then in the United States, it was noticed in the 1960s and 70s that there were suddenly very large outbreaks of antibiotic-resistant foodborne illness, which was a thing that had never existed in the world before. And so, as you mentioned, in the, in the United States, England actually successfully controlled this practice. In 1969, a government commission told the English government we really should ban the the use of growth promoters. And in 1971, they did. They were the first government anywhere to do that. And that directed attention to the United States because we, after all, were the historic home of growth promoters. And so in 1977, um, it was the beginning of the Carter administration, which was a very activist, reformist administration coming in as outsiders to Washington, wanting to change a lot of things about the government. And one of the people in that crew of reformers was a new FDA commissioner. His name was Donald Kennedy. He later went on to be the president of Stanford University. And he came into office swearing that he was going to take away the licenses for growth promoters that the FDA had approved in the 1950s. And he proposed to hold a hearing in 1977 in which he would challenge the drug manufacturers, the antibiotic manufacturers, to prove that there was no risk from their products used in animals. And if they could not prove that, he was going to take the licenses away. And as you mentioned, he never got to do that. A a very powerful congressman who had oversight over the FDA's budget communicated via a back channel to the White House and said, if this hearing goes forward, I will hold hostage the entire FDA budget. Well, the Carter administration, you know, they were reformers, but they weren't dumb about politics. And they knew they had a lot of other battles that they wanted to fight with regard to the things that the FDA um, has oversight over. And so they communicated back-channel to their own agency head and told him his own hearing could not go ahead. And that congressman, Congressman Jamie Witten of Mississippi, actually put a rider on the appropriations bills that said that until he said otherwise, the FDA could not invest in research into whether antibiotics used in animals were a risk. And that went on until the 1990s when Congressman Witten retired, the longest serving member of the House of Representatives at the time. So the government's hands were tied, even though from that point, decade after decade, every major scientific body, the National Academy of Sciences, the Institute of Medicine, the AMA, even academic researchers funded by the NIH all said time and time again, antibiotics used freely in meat animals are a grave risk to human health. But it took more than 30 years before we finally got some movement on this issue in the United States. And in fact, that happened just in 2017, just as the Obama administration was going out of office. They created a set of rules that changed how we use antibiotics in animals in the US.
0: Yes, indeed. So some definitely positive steps in the right direction. So all this has been some doom and gloom and and many people know bits and pieces of the story but i'm sure you expanded their uh, information quite quite significantly so let's talk about the good news now because there is some indeed very good news some progressive uh uh, sellers and large sellers of chickens that are actually taking steps in the right direction and then there's some other sellers who are continue to deceive the public and advertise them sales as natural you know a totally abusing the term and, and, and having some of the worst standards in the industry in their chickens. So uh, that, uh, maybe we should expose them first before you go to the good guys.
1: So the issue that we're talking about here is to, to remind is the problem of antibiotic resistant bacteria mm-hmm. issuing from chicken. Mm-hmm. But there is one major chicken company in the United States that has been saying that Backing away from antibiotic use is not only not, not important for human health, they yeah. actually call it a gimmick. And this is the <laughs> The company Sanderson Farms, which uh, which is a very major chicken company that exists across the the South. And you can actually see their commercials on YouTube in which their characters in their commercials speak to the consumer and say it's a gimmick. And the reason they say it's a gimmick is they say that any chicken in the marketplace, any chicken in your supermarket, is antibiotic-free because it has no antibiotic residue in its meat. And that is both true and also beside the point, because yeah. the, whole, uh, the whole aspect of regulation and the thing that, that good companies have been doing is not based on residue. It's based on reducing the bacteria, mm-hmm. because it's the bacteria that's actually a threat to us. So that's the bad side, but there is a good side. And, and there's actually a couple of good sides, but, mm-hmm. but the companies first, since we're talking about companies. In 2014, kind of out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. The, the company Purdue Farms, this is the company that for, for people of a certain age will remember Frank Purdue, who who was, you know, the face of his company. He was the son of the founder. And he mm-hmm. for years and years and years had these commercials that said it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. It was, he kind of looked like a chicken himself. Hmm. Um, so that the company now is run by his son, the grandson of the founder, Jim Purdue. And Jim Purdue, summoned a press conference in 2014 in Washington DC and announced out of nowhere that his company planned to go antibiotic-free. In fact, they, al- they already substantially were, he said, and at this point in, in 2018, they are more than 99% antibiotic-free and this completely shocked the rest of his industry and really forced the rest of the industry to follow in Purdue's steps. And and at you know, after Purdue came Tyson and Cargill and uh, McDonald's and Subway and Taco Bell and many, many both food production and food service companies followed because Purdue, which is the fourth largest chicken company in the United States, made it possible for the market to open up to antibiotic-free chicken. Now, the the reason I think that Purdue mm-hmm. felt they could do that is they were really being pressured by their their consumers. They have told me that they would get more than 3,000 comments a month from consumers through, you know, phone and email and Facebook and so forth, asking them about antibiotic use in their chickens. And I think that's a signal of something Mm -hmm. really important, which is that all of these companies felt it it was possible to change, and, and the Obama administration felt it was possible to create those rules that I mentioned because a consumer movement was rising. That's That said to food companies, we no longer want to spend our dollars for meat that was raised with routine use of antibiotics. We don't feel that this is safe. Uh, this was said by very large catering departments and hospitals who said this puts our vulnerable patients at risk. It was said by very large food systems in, in school districts. The first was the Chicago school district, which is the third largest in the country, who said we don't want to feed this to our kids. And then farmers and chefs and um, family members of people who had had drug-resistant infections all joined into a consumer movement that both said to companies, you have to change or you're not getting our money. And also showed companies that if they did change, there would be a market waiting for them.
0: Well, and it's even better than that because Purdue is a large company. As you mentioned, the fourth largest chicken producer in the United States. And they're not going to make some stupid chivalrous move that's going to bankrupt them. So they study this thing for years. They did, which which is fascinating. And the results of their study was, yeah, it worked initially, but it's not making a damn bit of difference now. So this is where they were able to stop. So why don't you expand on that story?
1: So uh, when Purdue did uh, studies. In a number of their farms so remember they have all these contract farms where farmers are under contract to them each farm probably has a number of houses where chickens are being grown and so in a bunch of different ecosystems in a bunch of different states they chose farms that had two houses that were built at about the same time so the conditions would be the same and on each of those farms they gave the usual antibiotic laced feed to one flock of chickens and an antibiotic free feed to the parallel house and then they tested to see whether there really was a gain anymore, the gain in weight that 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 researcher had perceived back in the late 1940s. And, and no, one,
0: no that, one looked at it since then, right? right. I mean, no just
1: one to... had looked. Everyone had assumed that this is just the way it worked, that you always did this because, it, because, because they, they knew it worked, right? And, and no one had inquired into it. And what they discovered was that it just doesn't work anymore the way it used to, probably because back in the 1950s, Nutrition was not as precise, genetics were different, farms were probably not as clean. And so antibiotics would have been a crutch for lesser cleanliness and not as good animal welfare. And as those things came up, the crutch of growth promoters could be taken away. So they realized, they, could, they the company, Purdue, realized that they could sacrifice growth promoters, they could save some money, and they wouldn't lose anything. And then the thing that's really interesting, is they went from growth promoters to that more interesting question of giving antibiotics to prevent disease in animals crowded together. Remember, twenty-five to 35,000 birds in a barn. And they realized that they could do other things to stimulate the immune systems of their chickens that didn't involve antibiotics. And, you know, as a journalist, it's kind of an odd situation to be in to be giving praise to a big company because we're supposed to be taking a hard look at them. But, but I give them a lot of credit for being mm-hmm. so creative in what they looked at because they did things now like they, uh, they give er- herbs to their mm-hmm. chickens routinely and probiotics and prebiotics and you know, metal salts, all kinds of things that, are, that do not stimulate the development. Of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. They purified the bird's diets. Mm-hmm. They uh, It used to be routine to feed both uh, sort of industrial bakery leftovers and also rendered protein from slaughtering other animals to chickens. They took all of that out. And they managed to do all this, making their chicken antibiotic-free and increasingly healthy without changing, without affecting their bottom line. The thing that I especially love about that is that the, the last step that they took, which is being very influential in the industry, is they realized that another way to stimulate the immune systems of chickens was to let them do the things that chickens had always done, that industrialization had taken away from them. So they started cutting windows in the walls of the barns so that the chickens could get natural light, sunlight on their feathers, which would uh, induce vitamin production. And... They gave them things to hop up on and things to flap their wings around and, and, and stuff that allowed them to exercise. They are starting to reduce the, the overcrowding to some, they still are raising a lot of chickens but not in quite as close quarters as they used to. The thing that's especially magic about that to me is that all of the, the stuff I just described, giving them a different diet, letting them exercise, letting them have sunlight, those are not only things that, is, that stimulate the immune system. There are also things that create flavor. There are things that should, as they're pursued, change the taste of chicken back to the way chicken used to taste before we started this big uh, journey into industrialization.
0: Yes. Yes, indeed. So I have uh, great admiration and respect for Purdue for doing this uh, and being a leader in this field and really... You know taking the initiative and going forward with it and being the first to do it however i just want to emphasize <clears throat> that there's still some problems and i wouldn't eat a purdue chicken for a number of reasons one is that um chickens have to eat grain they just can't eat grass it just doesn't work that way they eat insects ideally uh and they're usually always given grain and the grain that they're fed is raised with gmo basically gmo grain that's sprayed with glyphosate so you're going to get massive glyphosate residues in any ty- type of commercially capable produced chicken, including Purdue. So, they are indeed an unquestionably progressive company, and I would hope at some point they consider taking it the next step and having maybe a sub-brand of organic, you know, non-GMO grain that's given to these chickens, because it's not that much harder to do it. They're, well, of- they're already
1: there. In fact, Purdue, I think, is, this is quite odd to think of such a big company as as um, being in this position, but because they bought um, a couple of companies that were organic producers, they are now the largest producer of organic chicken in the U.S., and the organic rules, as you know, are, mm-hmm. are rule out GMO. And, and this, I think, is where um, the next really big question has to be asked, because it, in the process of reporting this book that we've been talking about, I went to chicken production systems in a couple of different countries. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I spent time with uh, producers who do work on very, very small farms with very tight government rules in France and also very large farms that are very industrial but also are antibiotic-free and very high welfare in the Netherlands. Well, GMO feed, I mean, GMOs in general, are not legal in the European Union. So all of these chicken production systems, both the very small ones and the very large ones are managing to exist without the use of GMOs. And so, you know, if they can do it, the Netherlands is the, the largest exporter of, of meat in Europe, I believe, then certainly we can learn to do it too. And it seems to me that as it, you know, if consumers keep pressing for change, mm-hmm. then, then that's where attention is going to go next.
0: Which is really inspiring and to know that we can make a difference and have made a difference. Uh, so the issue is just to push forward and continue with the change, the needed changes. So uh, one, one of the other types of antibiotics that was a problem is a chemical substance called ionophores. So I'm wondering if you could describe what those are and and mention the importance of eliminating them from the, um, the feed too, because they're still used and right. you can so, you can remove the antibiotics but they may still have many ionophores in there
1: right so ionophores to be uh, just to sort of to define our terms here ionophores are a class of antibiotics that in chickens are used to eliminate a particular parasitic disease that's called coccidiosis and and it's almost impossible to avoid coccidiosis in one of those big crowded chicken houses it's not so much a problem for pasture raised birds um, coccidiosis, op- that, that parasitic infection, opens birds up to a lot of other very serious health problems. So when the European Union banned growth promoters in 2006, they actually gave ionophores a pass in chicken. They, they banned them in cattle because in cattle they do act as a growth promoter. And um, in the United States, some companies that have moved away from antibiotics in their chicken Are holding on to ionophores or are taking, uh, they're doing things in steps. So for instance when Tyson followed Purdue and said we are going to go antibiotic free, this would have been in late 2014 or possibly early 2015, um, they initially said we're going to keep ionophores because we need that we need that interim step. But in 2017 they announced that they too had done away with ionophores. And so what this says to me, now, now ionophores are, are not so much a risk for consumers of chicken because they don't create, the, the, you know, we, we don't use ionophores in human medicine. So there's no risk that something will become resistant to ionophores, infect a human, and then we cannot treat it. Mm-hmm. But what it says to me is that consumers have to be really careful when they're buying meat to ask a lot of questions. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the thing that I ask people to do is first look for chicken that has an antibiotic-free label, but then ask your market or your butcher or wherever you're buying that bird, what does this really mean? What do you know about the practices of the producer? Because under that label of raised without antibiotics or no antibiotics ever, there may be some sort of footnotes that people need to know about.
0: Yes, indeed. So the devil's in the details, and you need to pay attention to that. But let's go into some of the other companies now that are really doing good things. You mentioned Purdue, of course, but then there's also retailers like uh, Chick-fil-A, which I think led the charge, and others that have followed, even McDonald's, that are adopting this, the uh, the dem- or creating a demand for this type of meat. So can you expand on that?
1: Sure. And you know the the landscape of of wholesale and retail around chicken with the antibiotic issue is really interesting. Because, you know, of course, from for years before any of this became a political issue, th- there were some retailers who right from the start said we're going to be antibiotic free. Whole Foods is a great example. Mm-hmm. And there were some food service companies that right from the start said we're going to be antibiotic free. And Chipotle there is a great example. But the the movement of companies that you wouldn't really expect into the antibiotic free space is one of the things that's exciting about this story about the, the evidence of change and and the greatest example of that is chick-fil-a which for people who don't know about it is a, a fast food chain that is based here in atlanta but is very very common across the u.s and is also is very common on college campuses they they make a kind of addictive chicken sandwich with a, a breaded fried chicken breast and a bun and a couple of pickle slices and people are obsessional about these sandwiches Chick-fil-A is also, it's a privately held company Mm -hmm. that's very explicitly Christian, which Mm -hmm. is not the the social stratum where people usually expect reform in the food system to come from. Mm -hmm. But they took a look at what they were doing and they said that they felt, out of their religious belief, that they had an obligation to, to be stewards of the earth. And they felt that the pressure they were getting from their con- customers to reduce antibiotic use or to buy chicken that was raised without antibiotics, that could be folded under what they felt as a religious obligation. And I love the story because there's always this sense in, when you're talking about the food system that there's only certain people who are going to create change in the food system. But what's happening with antibiotics is that the pressure for change it's coming from all sides. You know, it's coming from hospitals. It's coming from schools. It's coming from churches. It's coming from college campuses where there are very activist kids moving toward, you know, forcing meat production companies to change. It's really um, it, it, it crosses political lines. It crosses social cultural lines. Everyone sees that there really is a risk here. And the reason that that's so great is that we've only been talking about chicken. Right, there's still mm-hmm. a lot of change that has to happen to yeah, pork absolutely. and to beef for us to get to a really trustworthy, safer meat production system. And pork and beef are hard because pigs live longer than chickens do, and cattle live longer than chickens do. And they also in their raising get moved around a lot. So, you know, chickens on the first first between day one and day three of their lives, when they're little fluff balls, they get dumped in that barn and they don't leave until the night that they are picked up to be slaughtered. The pigs move at least between two barns in the course of their lives, and cattle move to different properties. And so the more they move around, the more they're exposed to disease risks. The more they're exposed to disease risks, the harder it is to reduce antibiotic consumption. So all of this consumer pressure coming from all these different axes now needs to turn to, the, the, to, to pork producers and to beef producers to show them that this is really what the modern consumer wants, is to have all of their meat, no matter what the type, be antibiotic-free.
0: Yes, indeed. And your book does an excellent job of really detailing the enormous success, probably the biggest success in food production I've ever seen, that's happened as a result of consumer pressure. So if we've done it for the number, I mean, admittedly, it's a lot easier for the reasons you cited, but we can't. if it's the, that's the, still the number one source of food or meat that people are consuming... We should be able to do it for cattle and, and pork. So, w- do you have any recommendations to those listening as to what they could do to 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 catalyze and speed up this process?
1: Just keep asking. You know, I I mean, I think that w- we are where we are because all of these very large consumer movements, these aspects of the consumer movement, you know, big buyers like hospital and hospitals and school systems, um, you know, col- the the um, it's the word I want, the chapters of organizations, animal welfare organizations on mm-hmm. college campuses, things like the Humane League and US PERG and so forth, all said, we're just not going to do this anymore. You have to change your practices or you don't get our money. I think it's possible yeah. to create that kind of pressure as well. Now, the thing that we really need to look at, though, is that as much as we can change the meat production system in the United States, there's, there's a big world out there and mm-hmm. the United States and Western Europe, though we have have controlled some antibiotic use, we're still just kind of a rounding error compared to the the growing economies of the developing world, which, as they develop, larger middle classes are starting to to seek and to buy much more meat. Mm-hmm. It would be reasonable for those economies to turn toward the kind of very intensive antibiotic fuel production systems that we, created here in the United States. And so one of the, the big global goals for the next couple of years is to try to convince those developing economies that they shouldn't make the mistakes that we did. I mean, it's going to take some kind of international action, kind of like international action on climate change, in order to really move the whole world toward antibiotic-free meat production. But, but, but you know we got one of the first steps here in the United States, and that's something that we really should be excited about, even though there's still a long way to go.
0: Yes, indeed. So it's a really great success story. Now in the book, you also, uh, in the process of writing the book, you've is visited some uh, farmers and visited a farmer I that I actually visited, uh, Will Harris, out not too far from you in South Georgia.
1: Fantastic. So
0: uh, the uh, White Oak Pastures, Pastures, I believe. Yeah. Yes. So great farm. He is the large, and I've done an interview with him. It's on the site. And He's uh, produces ten thousand eggs a day, and his chickens are just incredible. I mean, he's got these the predators there and the guard dogs keeping the hawks away and shotguns and they are an
1: amazing family. Yeah, yeah, it is.
0: I was just that was like one of the best trips I've ever had was visiting Will's farm. So maybe you can expand on your experience a bit.
1: So one of the things that is so great about the move toward antibiotic free meat is, I think, that it opens up the market for small and medium-sized producers to compete in a way that they couldn't compete when the question was just price, right when Purdue and Tyson can't have have such economies of scale that they could always make things cheaper than a medium-sized producer like Bell and Evans in Pennsylvania who's in a lot of Whole Foods on the East Coast or a pasture-based producer like white oak pastures. Now now white oak pastures is not a small place. it's three thousand acres. It's um, got a beautiful story. it's a now fourth gen, fourth and fifth generation family farm. The sixth generation has actually just been born. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Will Harris, whom you mentioned, is the fourth generation, Will Harris III. Uh, his family story, his family arc, is that farm in deep southwest Georgia went from a subsistence farm in one generation to a truck farm in the second generation to a very modern post-World War II, fully industrial, fully technological cow-calf operation in the third generation using antibiotics and hormones and just every technological innovation, everything that said, we trust in science, nothing's ever gonna go wrong. And Will, the fourth generation, was supposed to continue what the previous generations had built and have an, an, an enlarge this this monoculture of cattle supported by completely artificially maintained fields. And then he changed his mind. Mm-hmm. And he built instead, he, he, he took away the herbicides and the pesticides, he took away the hormones and the antibiotics, he realized that, uh, that his farm was out of balance when he did that, and he started bringing in other species, and now he has a 10-species rotational grazing, restorative agriculture property, the largest organic property in the southeastern United States, in which they raise... Uh, five species with four legs and five species with two legs um, and their, their grass fed beef is sold uh, through whole foods. Uh, in my area, their chickens are sold through whole foods. Their eggs are delicious, but will is that who's described the, the this evolution of his farm in the book. He's very candid that this is costly. Mm-hmm. Doing things like this has a much higher labor cost than anyone would expect to see on a big industrialized property. And so, you know, now that the meat market is turning away some from antibiotic use, I think that consumers, when they can, are going to start making choices on the basis of ethics and animal welfare and sort of, you know, clean meat, purity. And and people like him can compete on those terms when they can't compete on, on pure price. When I can when when my budget allows it, I buy his chicken because it's delicious and I know it has been raised to the absolutely highest standards there um, they have a ranking from the global animal partnership the global animal partnerships rankings go from one to five and his is five plus
0: yeah no question <clears throat> for Christmas last Christmas, I had one of his ducks for a Christmas dinner uh, it was just that was great, fantastic I
1: did too yeah <laughs> the for Christmas
0: yeah, but you know what's even better than duck, though, and I've never had it before uh, prior to... He has a restaurant on his farm, was that goose meat. That goose meat is the best. I thought I liked duck, but goose is uh-huh. far superior. It is just oh, that's unbelievable. Fantastic. Yeah, so uh, that was one of the best meals I've had in a long, long time after visiting his farm. He's got a great restaurant there. So, um, but anyway, anyway. It's, we're, we're t- uh, <clears throat> tying things up now. So... Um, Great book, uh, very inspiring and empowering to know that, you know, we have made a pretty massive or have had a pretty massive influence just by continuing with voicing our concerns. And my recommendation, and I'll let you echo yours, is to be persistent and diligent and know that this has worked in the past this is a tried and proven strategy and even though it may seem like an enormous waste of time which you don't have a lot of extra time but to do the to do the uh, the hard work of contacting going through the chain you know not just trusting the butcher going to the manager going to the store owner uh, and getting ultimately connecting with the producer and then if he's not providing the type of meat that you think then letting the the store owner or manager know that this is your preference, and then get some of your friends to do the same thing. And when a lot of people start making those comments, there's going to be change.
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, that is it's my belief that that is why this change in meat production in the United States happened. It would never have happened without consumer pressure. Yes, the Obama administration did create new rules that banned Growth promoters, but not preventive antibiotics, in the United States, and there's supposed to be some controls about preventive antibiotics. I think we still have to wait and see if if they're really going to work or not. But, but it's my firm belief that both the administration and the meat production companies felt safe moving because they knew that a consumer movement was waiting for them. And so we can't rest on what we've gotten so far. We have to go forward to say to to pig producers, to cattle producers, mm-hmm. to fish producers—you know, for mm-hmm. fish farming and especially in the the developing world, shrimp farming—are huge consumers of antibiotics, um, which is even more influential for the ecosystem of the ocean than it is for the ecosystem of the land. And as pointless as it seems to just, you know, to, to send a message through a company's Facebook page or to go talk to the customer service desk at a supermarket. All of those messages add up. They -hmm. really did create change and people can create more change if they just persist.
0: Absolutely. So, um, and then finally, just to be uh, clear, uh, even though the whole book's about chicken, I personally don't eat much chicken. I hardly eat any chicken (laughs) at all, Uh, but I am just so beyond ecstatic and delighted to see the progress in this area because it gives us so much hope for penetrating the other areas and really, not even just meat production, but just the whole system, Uh, you know, to know that we can make a change, even though there's pernicious, I go so far as to say evil influences on the federal regulatory agencies to confuse and manipulate and deceive people that some of these... Uh, processes are safe when, in fact, they aren't. Like glyphosate or gen- GMOs or genetic engineering. So, but that's another story. Uh, but I, th- I think meat is great if you have a healthy source. I don't think we need to eat a lot. Maybe two to three ounces. Maybe four if you're a big guy. But you know that you don't need a lot. Uh, one chicken would last. A, would feed a few people, especially these big chickens. I mean, yeah. maybe four four people. So, you know, just don't think you need to eat. A, you know, it's just it's actually going to. Um, wreck havoc on your health long-term. You can do it occasionally, but you don't want to do that long-term. Okay, any final words?
1: Um, I hope that people really will take this to heart and, and look for antibiotic-free meat when they do their grocery shopping or where they ask other family members to do their grocery shopping. Just look for a label that says raised without antibiotics, no antibiotics ever. Don't rely on it being organic because here's the thing the us organic standard for chicken starts on day 2 of the chicken's life mm-hmm. so that chicken uh, the, the a chicken raised by an, an organic producer that thinks they're doing everything right could have been given antibiotics either injected into the shell or in the first day of life to cover the the to protect them in transit to the organic producer so for me the it, it's as important to see no antibiotics ever, or raised without an- antibiotics, as it is to see organic, which which covers so many other benefits for the animal. And I really think if people just keep pressing and keep pressing, we're going to see more change.
0: And that has a convenient acronym, I believe, which is N. Period A. Period E. Period All caps, right?
1: No N-A-E. antibiotics ever. NAE.
0: Yeah. So if you look for NAE, then you've got you know you're not going to be deceived by that little window of opportunity where they could have snuck them in there. So it's great. You know, one last comment on my part too. One of the reasons I avoid chicken—I don't eat a lot of meat to begin with—but pretty much the only opportunity I get since I don't purchase it personally is when I'm traveling. So uh, on a plane and a restaurant, and you know, you can almost guarantee, unless you're in a specialty restaurant, that 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 chicken is not organic. (laughs) No way. And maybe that'll be different in the future, but it's not. Which is one of the reasons I avoid it because I know it's such such an inhumanely raised animal and poorly treated. So. Uh, just avoid chicken unless you're absolutely confident (laughs) that, you know, you found a good source.
1: Know what your sources are. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important.
0: All right. Well, thanks again for writing such a good book and providing us with this loads of information to not only open our eyes in this area, but to inspire us to go even
1: further. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much for watching. Remember hit the like and subscribe button so you can get more videos they can help you and your family take control of your health.